turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, we are going to spend time this morning in the book of Acts. I've really chosen Acts 17 as a text of, I could have chosen many texts to preach the sermon I'm preaching this morning. Not the exact exposition I'm doing, obviously. I didn't just pick an exposition and then just apply it to a text, just so we're clear. But to drive at the overall point that I'm wanting to make this morning about the apostolic model and missions, I could have picked several. I went with Acts 17 as the text which we'll exposit this morning. And so we're going to read in Acts 17. We're going to read through verse 9. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men from the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd." And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as a security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider this passage as we look at what your spirit has superintended at the hand of Luke as he wrote about the work of Christ in his life, death, and resurrection, and about the continued work of Christ in Acts by the Spirit through the apostles. We pray that we would understand your word properly, that we would be informed by it, that we would learn from the model of the apostles what it is to be faithful in mission. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in our series on missions this summer, we've considered our authority for missions. In the first session, what's our authority for missions? And we talked about the Word of God. That was the first thing we covered. Then we spent three weeks really on the foundation of our mission in the persons and work of the triune Lord, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then we went to the goal of missions, which is the redeeming of the church, the bride of Christ for whom he gave his life the church that he is building. And this morning, we want to look at the Spirit-empowered ministry of the apostles and really, to some degree, consider the method of missions, if you will. So if we've looked at our authority, the foundation, and the goal, now we want to look at the method of missions. We want to consider how, how the apostles obeyed the Great Commission. And when I say the Great Commission, I mean the Great Commission passages in each of the Gospels, which really spell out for us one understanding of the Great Commission. I want us to see, as we look at the apostles, how the missionary activity of the apostles provides the proper understanding for how the Great Commission ought to be obeyed. In other words, it's not just that Jesus gave us a Great Commission at the end of every one of the Gospels and then gave us no guidance as to what it looks like to fulfill that commission. He actually gave us guidance in the example of the apostles. He showed us how it was obeyed by them and provided that as an example to us as to how we obey the Great Commission. And so I want to consider how they obeyed it. But in saying that, I want to, I want to just kind of give four caveats, if you will, just at the, at the front end that are kind of foundational assertions in the reading of the book of Acts. And when I say this, I don't expect you to write these four things down. I'm happy to email them to you. But I want you to understand these kind of four fundamental, if you will, kind of assertions in the reading of the book of Acts as we consider the example of the apostles. Here's the first one. The apostolic pattern is, is, is the foundational model for the New Testament church. That the apostolic pattern is the foundational model for the New Testament church. That is because the apostles are the foundation of the church, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20. So I'm arguing that they provide a pattern or a model for us. Now, please understand this. I am not arguing that we do everything that the apostles did. 
just like I would never argue that we do everything Jesus did. You understand that you're not the Messiah, right? So you can do some things Jesus did, but not everything Jesus did. Similarly, you're not apostles. So we can do some things the apostles did, but not everything that they did. There are aspects of their ministry that we do not replicate. Paul, that's Paul's argument, incidentally, in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, and that's the argument of the author to Hebrews in Hebrews 2, 4. The apostles did not establish more apostles. They planted churches, and what did the apostles establish? Elders and deacons. Theirs is a unique and unrepeatable redemptive historical work. We are no longer laying the foundation of the church. The apostles laid the foundation, and we're building on top of that already laid foundation. They were witnesses in a unique way. In fact, if you go to the book of Acts, that word witness is very technical. And it, in every instance, means an eyewitness, someone who saw the resurrected Christ. They were eyewitnesses to the crucified and resurrected Christ, and they were set apart by him to lay the foundation of the church. And yet, while there are unique and unrepeatable elements in their missionary work, their overall example is still foundational for us. So please understand that. While there are unique and unrepeatable elements in their work, their overall example is still foundational for us. Second caveat, the apostolic evangelistic sermons. There are several apostolic evangelistic sermons. If you're not familiar with them, Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 10, Acts 13, Acts 17, etc., those sermons repeat the same exact pattern in every instance. Same pattern of preaching in every instance. Thus demonstrating a clear understanding of how the apostles believed the Great Commission ought to be kept. And I'm going to show you that pattern this morning. Third, the apostolic sermons are recorded in a representative form with a focus on the main elements of that pattern. In other words, what I'm saying is every one of those sermons is intentionally abbreviated. You have to understand that because you need to understand at Pentecost, Peter did not preach for like 30 seconds. Nor at Athens in the Areopagus did Paul preach for about 10 to 15 seconds. If you read those sermons out, they, the longest one may take you a minute. They're intentionally abbreviated by Luke. And, and fourth, what we notice is that those repeated apostolic patterns are intentionally abbreviated even more by Luke as the story progresses. So you focus on the pattern rather than the full content of each sermon. So even though Pentecost sermons abbreviated, every sermon after that gets abbreviated even more and keeps the same pattern and puts aside the content that Luke knows you already expect, that you know is there. So I want to consider the apostolic model this morning with those caveats by considering a portion of Paul's second missionary journey as he takes the gospel to the end of the earth. And as we look at Paul on mission this morning, we're going to look at three principles of apostolic mission. Here's, here's what they are. The first principle is gospel purpose. The second principle is gospel proclamation. And the third principle is gospel partnership. Those are the three principles. Gospel purpose, gospel proclamation, and gospel partnership. So let's start with the three principles of apostolic mission by looking at the first principle. Gospel purpose. The apostles live with gospel purpose. Their lives were shaped by a kind of gospel intentionality. Look at Acts 17.1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now we begin Acts 17 in the context of Paul's second missionary journey. Paul had been sent out by the church of Antioch, Paul and Barnabas had, in Acts 13 on the first missionary journey. They'd gone out and and done the missionary work that they had. They ran into problems between Jews and Gentiles over the fact that Gentiles were repenting and coming to faith and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Jews were asking, well, don't they need to be circumcised? Doesn't more need to happen here? And so they were sent by the church at Antioch after these reports to go to Jerusalem. And there was a church council held in Jerusalem, by the way, demonstrating quite a bit of cooperation and organization among the early church. They hold a council. The apostles come there. And then what happens is the council sends them out after Acts 15. And in Acts 16, you see Paul then go. He splits with Barnabas over an argument about John Mark, which gets resolved later in their ministry. But at this point, they split. Paul ends up going out with Silas and Timothy and then Luke, etc. And he goes out on what we call the second missionary journey. And on that journey, Paul was expecting to head toward Asia. 
But he has this vision of the Macedonian man given to him by the Holy Spirit. And that Macedonian man is calling him to Macedonia. And so Paul follows that vision and goes to Macedonia. And incidentally, that's how the gospel gets to Europe and eventually to most of you. So he goes first to Philippi, where a church was planted. In Philippi, he planted a church there. And then he was persecuted by some of the Gentiles in Philippi. Remember that? He was jailed there. Then he was freed from that imprisonment. The Philippian jailer's family came to faith. But Lydia began hosting the church in her home. Philippian jailer's family is a part of that. Lydia and some of the people of her household are part of that. And that church is born in Philippi. And then Paul is chased out of town, if you will. He leaves Philippi after enduring persecution And he and his team head to Thessalonica. Then when persecution comes in Thessalonica, they head for Berea. Look down at Acts 17.10. So they come out of Philippi in Acts 16 from persecution and head to Thessalonica in the beginning of Acts 17. And then persecution comes in Thessalonica and they head to Berea. Look at verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night. And pay attention to that. It's not that Paul and Silas wanted to leave. It's they were sent away for their own safety by the church that had already been planted there. Immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived there, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Why? To continue preaching the gospel. The persecution comes in Berea and they head for Athens. Look at verse 14 of Acts 17. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. So persecution comes to Berea, and so they send Paul off. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So he went to Athens to preach the gospel after being persecuted in Berean. You see Paul's pattern. Goes to Philippi, plants a church, is persecuted, is sent away. Goes to Thessalonica, Begins to preach, plants a church, is persecuted, is sent away. Goes to Berea, plants a church, is persecuted, is sent away. Goes to Athens and preaches again everywhere he goes. Now Jesus had told the disciples, the apostles, in the missions discourse of Matthew 10, that if they were persecuted in one town, they should flee to the next. But please don't misunderstand this. They did not flee to merely avoid persecution because they were afraid of suffering. If that's how you read the section of Acts, you're wildly off the mark. They were not afraid to suffer. They weren't fleeing to lick their wounds. They were fleeing to preach the gospel. If you look at Acts 17, 2, they went from Philippi to Thessalonica to preach the gospel. In Acts 17, 10, they went from Thessalonica to Berea to preach the gospel. In Acts 17, 16 through 17, they went from Berea to Athens to preach the gospel. In every place that they left, there was already a church planted. And incidentally, in every case, you'll see that Paul left some of his team behind. In Philippi, he leaves Luke behind. That's why you read in Acts 17, 1, now when they had passed through Amphipolis. Notice that pronoun, they. Prior to that, in Acts 16, the pronoun being used to, as you walk through the narrative of Acts is we, we, we. Why we? Because Luke is along for the ride. So we went here, and we went there, and we did this. Now it's they went, because Luke is left behind in Philippi to care for the church in Philippi. When they go to Berea, Paul and Silas go, but again, Timothy's left behind. And then Silas and Timothy are left behind in Berea at some point, or at least Silas is, and Paul goes on to Athens. He's always leaving part of his team behind to strengthen that church, and he's going on to continue preaching the gospel. But a church is planted, part of his team is left behind to strengthen that church, and then he moves on to preach the gospel in the next place. They are not showing you the example that when things get tough, you should leave. That's not the example. It isn't persecution comes, get out of Dodge. They are showing you the example that the gospel minister should allow nothing to distract him from the mission, nothing to distract him from his gospel purpose. See, they knew that the evil agent behind this persecution was Satan, and ultimately they knew that the Lord had decreed it for the purpose of spreading the gospel further. And the persecution never caused them, the persecution never caused them to hesitate to continue proclaiming the gospel. Rather, this persecution by Satan served to embolden them 
to spread the gospel even further. Listen to how Paul reflects to the church at Thessalonica. You don't have to turn there, but he reflects to the church at Thessalonica, whom he's left in Acts 17 here. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, listen to what he says. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And what do they do when they come to Thessalonica? Look at Acts 17 too. And Paul went in as was his custom. Notice that. Everywhere Paul goes, it is his custom to go where? Paul went into the synagogue. Everywhere he goes, he looks first for a synagogue of the Jews. You might not know this, but how does Paul find a synagogue of the Jews in every major city of Rome, of the Roman Empire that he comes to? Because they make up nearly 20% of the Roman Empire's population at that time. It's remarkable. And they were the only religious group in the Roman Empire allowed a kind of freedom of religion. Every other religion in the Roman Empire could believe what they believed as long as they also bowed to and declared that Caesar is Lord. But the Jews had a freedom not to do that as monotheists given to them by the Roman Empire for political purposes. That's one of the reasons why when the Christians start saying, we're not going to call Caesar Lord because we're also monotheists, the Jews say, they're not Jews like us. Imprison them. But everywhere Paul goes, he immediately goes to the synagogue to preach to the Jews first. That was his custom. He immediately goes looking for a synagogue. Why? Because Jesus told Paul that he would witness to the Jews in Acts 9, 15. He tells him, you're going to preach to the Gentiles and to kings and to the children of Israel. And so he always goes and does that. Paul tells us in Romans 9 and Romans 10 that his own heart was to see the Jews saved. Even after Jewish leaders persecuted the Christians, Paul kept going to the synagogues. And I imagine he kept going even after persecution, knowing that it was not that long ago that Paul himself was leading the persecution of the Christians. Paul's purpose was to see people come to know that Jesus is the Christ. He lived every day with that kind of gospel purpose. He was purposeful and intentional about making Christ known at every opportunity. He even saw persecution and suffering as an opportunity to make Christ known. And his purpose was clear on more than just the Jewish Sabbath. He was committed to gospel purpose throughout the week. Throughout the week. We know from 1 Thessalonians that Paul was there longer than three Sabbaths and that he saw many Gentile converts as well. Paul knew his purpose was to make Jesus known as the Christ, as the Lord and the Savior. And regardless of the circumstances, Paul continued to make him known. Now, I realize that none of you are apostles. I hope you realize that too. (laughs) Most of you are not pastors either. And so you have other vocations that don't afford you a full-time opportunity to be an evangelist. But still, how do you see your circumstances? How do you see your circumstances? How do you see your job? How do you see your coworkers? How do you see your family or your friends? Paul will later tell us in Acts 17, the same passage, that God appoints the times and places where men will live for the sake of reaching unbelievers. God has put you around the co-workers he's put you around, in the job he's put you in, in the neighborhood he's put you in, around the people and friendships and family he's given you so that those people might come to know Christ. So how do you see your job and your co-workers and your family and your friends? Do you look for opportunities to share the gospel with them? Do you ask the Lord for the boldness and grace to do so? I mean, do you just regularly on a daily basis pray, Lord, give me an opportunity to share the gospel. Lord, convert this brother, sister, this person that I love. Convert them to Christ. What about your difficult circumstances, your suffering? Do you see it as an opportunity to make Christ known? Does your suffering become an opportunity for you to proclaim Christ? Or do you use your suffering as a time to lick your wounds and expect others to serve you? See, what's the example of the Lord in his suffering? Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Always serving. Always purposeful about the gospel. Paul, in his suffering, chained in prison in Philippi, preaching the gospel. Why does Paul commend the Thessalonians? Listen to what he says to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1, 6. And you became imitators of us, that being Paul's apostolic band, if you will, and of the Lord. That's the Lord Jesus. How how did the Thessalonians become imitators? For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. 
See, they received, the church of Thessalonica received their suffering and persecution as an opportunity to minister to others, to proclaim Christ, to be an example to others. This is a necessary posture for our missionaries as well. Did you hear this? For our missionaries, it's a necessary posture. If they're not prepared to count it joy to suffer for the name, then they're not prepared for life on the mission field. It's not. Adoniram Judson, maybe you've heard of him, first American to go into foreign missions. He ended up in Burma. His intention was to go to India. He ended up in Burma, and he was there for nearly 40 years. He didn't actually come back to America for 33 years. He was a Congregationalist when he set out. He read his Bible, became a Baptist by the time he arrived. But that's a true story. I'm not saying that he was, I'm not even making a judgment on that. But the point is, that's what happened. The time he arrived, he's now a Baptist missionary in Burma. Now, prior to going out, he wrote his eventual father-in-law to ask about marrying his, his daughter. So what he did is, Adonai Judson had met a woman. He knew her for a month. He knew he wanted to marry her, and he wanted to take her on the mission field with him. So he said, I'm going to write to to my eventual father-in-law and ask for her hand in marriage. Now listen to Adoniram Judson's proposal to the father-in-law that he be able to, to marry his daughter. Listen to the gospel intentionality or purpose in this. I have now to ask, here's his letter, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring. Imagine getting this, fathers. To part with your daughter early next spring. To see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of the perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise, which shall redound to her Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? That's quite the letter for a young man to write to a future father-in-law asking if he can marry his daughter, is it not? There is a gospel intentionality and purpose even in the way he asks the father if he can have his daughter's hand in marriage. Incidentally, they arrived in Burma. He ministered for some time. He was imprisoned, actually tied to a pole for some time there, suffered from cholera and various diseases. This wife whom he took died. She gave birth More than once, the children died. She died. He married again. That wife died, and he stayed. Married a third wife. She seems to have made it through the rest of his ministry. But that was his reality. Prison, suffering, the death of two wives and multiple children. And he stayed. And he stayed. And he preached the gospel. Missionaries must understand that their labors in prayer and study and language learning and living cross-culturally All of it is for the purpose of the gospel, and it's worth it. They must understand that every sacrifice is for gospel purpose. Paul defines what this gospel purpose is for us in Acts 20, 24. He says this, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. See, listen, we as ascending church, and we have people in the field, we as ascending church must not hold rescuing missionaries from suffering as our first priority. We have to keep our focus on the gospel purpose of their suffering if the job is to get done. Now, look, folks, this isn't something we should take lightly. We're sending families. We're sending families we know and we love. I can see the smiling faces of the children in my mind as I speak about this, whom we've sent. Are we able to say, I mean, this is a sobering question, but please hear it. Are we able to say that their lives are worth the purpose for which we're sending them? Are we okay with the fact that their parents may have to step over their dead bodies to preach the gospel? It's weighty. That isn't something we just read about in books. That's real. We've sent real people to really difficult places. It's not just some Christian game we're playing. It ought to sober us. It ought to drive us to corporate and personal prayer. 
the most packed out meeting we ought to have is prayer meetings for our missionaries. Prayer meeting we have this afternoon at 4 o'clock in the office, it ought to be packed. The prayer meeting they have next Sunday at 9 a.m., it ought to be packed. You know why it ought to be packed? Because we just put people we love in the face of danger for the sake of making the gospel known. And we need the Holy Spirit to sustain them. We need him to work to save those people. We need him to work for the sake of these families. The fact that we find other things to do besides praying for them, to some extent we have to stop and say, when we can send them to these places and then we can go home and turn on the TV and not pray for them, get caught up with the business of life and focus on something else, shame on us. We need to pray for them. There are brothers in Christ. So the first principle we learn from the apostolic model is gospel purpose. The second principle is gospel mission. Uh, of gospel mission is gospel proclamation. So first, gospel purpose. Second, gospel proclamation. Look at Acts 17 and verse 2. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three days he reasoned. Pay attention to that word. He reasoned with them. Now pay attention to this. From the scriptures. You might say, why does it say from the Old Testament? Because that was the scriptures for them. What we call the Old Testament now was their Bible. From the scriptures. Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. And that's talking about the suffering of death at the cross. And to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now look down at verse 11. Now these Jews, that's the Jews in the synagogue in Berea, were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now I want to understand really three commitments in Paul's um, gospel proclamation, if you will. These kind of three commitments in his gospel proclamation. First is his authority, the authority he sees in gospel proclamation. Second, the method. And third, the content. Now, because I spent a whole sermon on the authority of missions being the Word of God, I just want to point this out briefly. The authority for Paul is the Word of God of the Scriptures. That's why in Acts 17, 2 and 3, he's going to the Scriptures. That's why in Acts 17, 11, they're receiving the Word. They're examining the Scriptures. The touchstone for the apostles is the Word of God, the Scriptures. The Word is their final authority. Find an apostolic sermon, and you will find them grounding their argument in the Scriptures. The Scriptures must be taught. Our appeal must be found in them. We're always to come to the Word of God and open the Scriptures for folks. The resurrected Christ did that. Do you know that? It's kind of remarkable if you think about it. Jesus raises from the dead. He finds the disciples, two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he blinds their eyes from seeing that he's resurrected, that it's him as the resurrected Christ. They say, haven't you heard about these things that happened? And then Jesus opens the Bible and begins to teach them about the necessity that Christ suffer and die and rise from the dead. In other words, what the resurrected Christ believed his own disciples needed most in the face of seeing him crucified... In the face of that, what I would imagine was an immense crisis of faith for the disciples. What he believed they needed most, Jesus believed they needed most, is to hear the Bible taught to them. And so he taught them the Bible. And then eventually he appears to them and removes the blinders so they see he's the resurrected Christ. And he leaves. And when he leaves, what the disciples say is, wasn't that amazing seeing the resurrected Christ? Nope. What they say is, didn't our hearts burn within us when he opened the scriptures to us? It's remarkable scene. Goes on when he appears to the apostles. What does he do? He opens their mind to understand the scriptures and he teaches everything concerning himself from the law and the prophets and the Psalms. In other words, the three sections of the Jewish Old Testament canon. He taught the disciples from the Old Testament. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now, if the resurrected Christ ministered in this way, if the resurrected Christ ministered in this way, then may we never move from the Scriptures as our authority. Never. The second commitment that was Paul's is not just the authority, but the method. What is his method? Teaching, preaching, reasoning, persuading. Look at Acts 17 and verse 2. And Paul went in, with, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He's making an argument. Showing them the Old Testament, showing them why Christ is the fulfillment of it. He's reasoning with them. Verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And saying this, Jesus whom I 
proclaimed to you, pay attention to that verb, is the Christ. So he reasoned, he explained, he proved, he proclaimed. Verse 4, they were persuaded. He persuaded them. Verse 11, they received. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, verse 12, therefore believed. So you reason, explain, prove, proclaim, persuade, and they receive, examine, believe. What's the point being made? Listen, this is not a self-discovery, self-guided Bible study happening here. I'm sure there's dialogue here, but Paul believes he is authoritatively teaching others in that exchange. He presents a concept. They ask, but what about this? He responds as the authoritative teacher. This is not this kind of study where they got together and said, let's all look at the text and, and you come up with an understanding and I'll come up with an understanding and you'll have your truth and I'll have my truth and it's all good, right? It's not what's happening. The primary method in missions today, if you didn't know this, teaches that we should get some unbelievers together and let them interpret the scriptures on their own with no teachers. And they assert that the Holy Spirit is the teacher and he will keep them from error. If you don't believe that, go watch the debate I did with one of the primary missiologists today. It is true that the only effectual teacher of Scripture is the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit tells us that he works through the ordinary means of Christian teachers, teaching the Bible. Paul and the other apostles understand this, and so they teach, exhort, and exclaim. Now listen to this. Verbs of teaching, proclaiming, refuting, reasoning, and persuading, requiring hearers to understand, think, reason, consider, and examine are used over a hundred times in the book of Acts. Further, there's an emphasis in all this on the boldness in preaching throughout Acts. And as Alan Thompson rightly argues, in these contexts then, boldness is the willingness to be clear in the face of fear. What happens when we're afraid? We start to get kind of mealy-mouthed, don't we? We're afraid of what people will think of us, so we kind of pull our punches and become unclear, and then someone starts saying to you, you said a lot of words, but I'm not sure you actually said anything. Boldness in the context of Acts is to be clear in the face of fear. The church must understand and be committed to the truth that God's word must be taught and explained and argued for and proclaimed with clarity and authority. So may we remain committed to heralding the word of God to those who need to hear and receive. Now, the third commitment. So you have Paul's authority is the word of God. You have Paul's method is preaching, proclaiming, reasoning, examining, etc. And then you have the content of their proclamation. And the content of their proclamation is Christ and his work. That's the center of their content. I preach Christ and him crucified. Christ and the work of Christ. Look at Acts 17.3. Explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. There is Christ and his work. And saying this Jesus who I'm proclaimed to you is the Christ. Now, we don't know where Paul went in the Old Testament when he did this. We imagine he probably went to passages like Genesis 3.15, Psalm 2, Psalm 22, Psalm 110, Isaiah 53. And the reason I say that is because we see those texts so often quoted by the apostles. But here's what I know. He wanted to establish that the Christ must suffer and rise from the dead. Why? Why does he want to establish that? Well, because Jews stumbled over the idea of a crucified Christ. But that is because, please hear this, that is because Jews first stumbled over the idea that they were slaves of sin and death. They misread the Old Testament promises to them and made those promises into fleshly birthrights. They didn't understand that those promises are given to them to save them from their own sin. The Christ must suffer and rise because the Old Testament said he would. The Christ must suffer, die, and be resurrected because we are sinners and someone must pay the debt of our sin. He must rise because death is our punishment. The grave our recompense and someone must conquer it. That is always the content of our message. Always the content of our message. But is this always the content no matter who they're speaking to? Yes. They just come to the gospel, depending on their audience, from a different starting point. With the Jews, they, they come to the gospel by beginning with the Old Testament promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They can jump straight to the prophets and say, these are the promises the prophets made to us. And the Jews have a context for all of that. They're already monotheists, and they believe that the Old Testament is true. 
We see that at Pentecost. Where does Peter begin in Pentecost? In Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit descends, he begins by explaining it to the Jewish audience, saying, listen, this is what Joel told us about. And the Jewish audience didn't say, who's Joel? We never heard of the Old Testament. They know who he's referring to. Peter appeals to Psalm 110, knowing that they'll be familiar with that reference. He talks about David, knowing they know who David is. We see this in their preaching in Jerusalem and Judea. For example, in Acts 3, after they heal the lame man, Peter preaches to the Jews in Solomon's colonnade by beginning with, you know who did this miracle? The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And the Jews in Solomon's colonnade knew who he was talking about. However, with Gentile audiences, the approach changes a bit. The overall method, preaching the gospel, or preaching, and the overall content, the gospel method, if you will, the facts, Jesus died and rose from the dead, and the doctrine for you and your salvation, therefore repent and be baptized, that all remain the same. But they start with God in a different manner. Look at, keep your hand in Acts 17 and look at Acts 10. Acts 10 and verse 34. This is when Peter comes to Cornelius. If you look at Acts 10, for example, 1 and 2, you learn that Cornelius is a centurion, of the Italian cohort. He is a God-fearing Gentile. He is not a Jew. He has not converted to Judaism at this point. He is a God-fearing Gentile, though. And Peter is sent to him. And he receives a a vision that Peter's coming, or a dream that Peter's coming. When Peter comes, look down at verse 34. Look at how Peter begins with him. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And then he goes on to preach the content of the gospel, the life, death, resurrection of Christ. Now, what's fascinating about this, why come to a God-fearing Gentile and say to him, let's begin not with the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, not with the God of the prophets, but let's begin with the God who shows no partiality, but looks upon those who fear him, precisely because of who his audience is. He needs to start exactly where Cornelius is and help him understand Cornelius would have wondered as a God-fearing Gentile, will the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob ever accept me? I'm a Gentile. Would the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob send the Messiah for me? I'm a Gentile. Isn't the Messiah coming for Israel? What do you mean he's come for me? And so he says, let's begin with the God who shows no partiality. Let me reinform your understanding of who God is and the fact that God sent the Christ for you too. Look at Acts 17. Here's a completely different context. These aren't God-fearing Gentiles, but these are the Athenians. Acts 17 and verse 16. Verse 16, look there. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, that's Silas and Timothy, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So now Paul has come to a city full of idolaters. Are they monotheists? No. Are they familiar with the Old Testament? Likely not. These are just Gentile pagans who don't know likely much about the Jewish faith. They're idolaters. They have the wrong God. They have the wrong understanding of man. They have the wrong understanding of sin. And thus, Jesus is going to make no sense to them. So where does Paul start? As he gets up to speak to them, look at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, or Mars Hill, this is this place in Athens, where men would go to speak. He's not just on a random street corner yelling at people as they come by. This is a place where people actually met to hear new ideas. So he comes in. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you were very religious. He's right, they're religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now notice where he goes with God. With Cornelius, he knew that Cornelius knew about the God of the Old Testament. Cornelius just wondered, would the God of the Old Testament ever favor me? Would he ever send the Messiah for me? With the Jews, he knew they knew about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of the prophets. So he just started there. But look where Paul now starts here. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. In other words, Let me tell you, there's one God. He created all things. Let's start there. You don't even know that. It's going to reinform their whole understanding and worldview. Nor is he served by human hands. He doesn't live in temples. Served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. See, they thought the idols were these kind of needy gods whom they had to serve and appease to keep happy. He's like, God created everything. He owns everything. He doesn't have any needs from you. 
that they, verse 26, why did he create all this? And he made from one man, now he's going to go to Adam, because they wouldn't have known that story. He made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Even as some of your poets have said, for indeed we are his offspring. Paul is quoting their poets. That's how well he knows what they believe. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. You you hear where he's going? They understand these men need the gospel, but they must start with their understanding of God and man and sin before they can move to the salvation that Christ brings. They must challenge their current understanding and correct what's incorrect with the truth that the Bible proclaims. That requires a solid knowledge of language and culture, doesn't it? You must know what others are hearing when you speak. Jesus is only the right answer if you're asking the right question. But no matter where Paul or the apostles go, they're always driving at the same content every time. We're created by God. We sinned against God. Now we're condemned sinners in the hands of an angry God. But God in his great love for us sent Jesus, his son, for us. Jesus lived and taught and did miracles and was crucified and resurrected. Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is Lord and Savior, and there's no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. So repent and believe the gospel. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Everywhere they went. Everywhere they went. We need the salvation of the Father in love sent the Son in grace to purchase for us at the cross. And that is applied to us by the Holy Spirit, through faith. So from the apostles, we learn that we need to be committed to gospel purpose and gospel proclamation. Let me try to come at this last one kind of quickly. Gospel partnership is the third point. Gospel partnership. Gospel purpose, gospel proclamation, and thirdly, we need to be committed to gospel partnership. If we're to be effective in our mission of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must understand that our efforts are churchly efforts. They're communal We use a fancy term, they're ecclesiastical efforts. In other words, I'm arguing that effective mission requires gospel partnership. We are not solo evangelists who go out with no assistance from the church. It is the church who plants churches. It is the church who sends out missionaries. It is the church which people are saved into. And so I just three quick ways that shows up. First, gospel partnership requires joining a local invisible church requires joining a local invisible church. Look at Acts 17.4. And some of them were persuaded. They believed and joined Paul and Silas. They joined them. They became associated with is the language there. Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. See, we don't see the salvation of disconnected individuals. Rather, when they believe a church is born. Church is born. They didn't get saved at some altar call and then return home. By the way, the altar calls didn't start till about the 1840s, just so you know. So they didn't get saved at one of those and then return home never to come back to the fellowship of the church. Rather, they joined the church. They generally did so through baptism. We saw that at Pentecost. They believe, they're baptized, and the church is born. They look to Christ, and they immediately wanted to join with, to associate with, to fellowship with the mission of the local church. They visibly met together. We see that throughout Acts. When the people repent and are baptized at Pentecost, what do they do? They immediately form a visible and local church. Everywhere Peter and Paul go, they establish local churches. They set up elders and deacons. Also, pay attention to the fact that it even became known by the unbelievers in Thessalonica where the church was meeting. Look at verse 5. This is a fascinating fact. The unbelievers knew the church was meeting. Pay attention. Verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, you think about a mob of the rabble, it's kind of funny language, but they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. It's a fascinating word there. They knew that the Christians were all meeting at the house of Jason. Stop and think about what that tells you. This is a new church in Thessalonica, and the unbelievers already know where those believers gather together to meet visibly and locally. They know they can find them there. 
The church cared for one another and ministered together to others. As a church, they became examples to other churches in how they suffered for the gospel together. Now, here's a question I have for you. I wonder if folks who know you can identify your commitment to the local church. Do they identify you with Christ's visible body? Could the people who know you around you, the unbelievers around you, could they point to what group of believers you gather with on a Sunday? Listen, if they can identify where your kids go to school, the sports teams they play for, the professional sports teams that you're a fan of, but they can't identify the visible body of Christ you're a part of, you might want to assess what you value most and what you've become known for. If they can tell you where you work, but they can't find out where you worship, they don't know, what have you become known for? These believers became known for the local church they're a part of. They can be found. Because I'm united to Christ by the Spirit, I'm united to you. Because I'm adopted by the Father through Christ and in the Spirit, I'm your brother eternally. Because I know and love the Lord Jesus, I know and love his bride, the church. That, that leads to this really next quick point about gospel partnership. Gospel partnership is shown in the members' solidarity with their ministers. Hear that? Shown in the solidarity between members and their ministers. And by their ministers, I don't just mean their pastors, but their missionaries as well. When the members of a local body are in solidarity with their ministers and their missionaries, look at verse 5 of Acts 17. But the Jews were jealous... Taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Now notice what happens. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason, the rest, they let them go. See, Jason and the rest of the believers there loved the Lord and his ministers, expressly Paul and Silas and Timothy here. And they show solidarity in suffering. In fact, they protect them, they hide them, and they take the charges against themselves and financially get fined themselves. There's a kind of gospel partnership that you see right here. It requires that members pray for their pastors and missionaries. It requires that they know they share a common suffering with their ministers and missionaries. See, we're in this together. When one member of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. And our desire is to come alongside one another and carry others, if need be. But that caring of each other is toward the purpose of gospel ministry. I, just as an aside, I know we live in a victim culture. And it seems to be growing, the victim culture. When suffering comes, we are generally encouraged to be radically self-protective, to lick our wounds, to heal from our burnout, to expect upon others to serve us. We even take it so far that we think suffering equals a free pass to sin in our behaviors and attitudes. I'm suffering, therefore it's okay that I sin in my behavior and attitude. No one can say anything to me. I'm suffering. How dare they? Where's their compassion? But folks, suffering is an opportunity to witness your trust in the goodness of God. It's an opportunity to say, I do not know what's happening here. I cannot see how this is good, but I do know that God is good. For with the eyes of faith, I see Jesus upon the tree bleeding and dying for me. So I know God's good. Let me, let me give you a tangible example of how this looks with members and their pastors. During an incredibly difficult time in my life, I was complaining to Pastor Jason I was licking my wounds and complaining about my state of affairs, and I told him this. I remember it incredibly well. It was actually in the office at my house. I looked at him. I was, I'm sure, crying, and I said, I wish the Lord would remove this suffering from me so I can return to my calling. And Jason looked at me and said, it's okay. Nope. (laughs) Nope. With all the compassion of a gospel minister, Jason looked at me and said, this suffering is your calling. You need to be faithful to the Lord in this calling. That was a hard blow from my brother that was kinder than the softest kisses of those who unlovingly allowed me to wallow in the mud of the slough of despair. I was awakened again to my gospel purpose through a godly gospel partnership. Suffering, if God's given it to you, is your calling, whatever that is for this time. You embrace it as an opportunity for the gospel. Finally, gospel partnership is shown in the minister's solidarity with their members. Shown in their solidarity, the minister's solidarity with the members. 
Paul, as a minister of the gospel, shows his solidarity with the ministers of the members of the church, doesn't he? He loved the Lord and his church. He never left the church unassisted. He did depart to proclaim the mission of the gospel, but he did not depart without leaving behind some pastoral leadership. When he was run out of a church too quickly, he returned as quickly as he could to set up elders there. That's why in Acts 17, 1, it says they, because Paul left Luke and Philippi. That's why in Acts 17, 14, Silas and Timothy are being left in Berea. Paul's heart is with the church, and he shows solidarity with them at the expense of giving up his own gospel partners. These are his best friends. These are the men who traveled with him. He left them behind in a persecuted situation so he could go preach the gospel because he loved the church, was committed to it. Paul wants nothing more than to see the flourishing of the local churches he's planting. His purpose, even at the cost of his own life, even in the midst of suffering, is to see people come to know Christ and to see them built up in him. His authority is the word. His method is to preach the whole counsel of God with complete patience and teaching. His constant and unwavering focus is Christ and him crucified. His heart is the glory of God and the good of the church. He lives to hear that the church is well in the faith even when all else is collapsing around him. In fact, listen to how he speaks to this, and I'll really end here in 1 Thessalonians 2, 17. But since we're torn away from you, brothers, here's Paul talking to the church of Thessalonica. Since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Let me pray. Father, we give thanks for the example, the model of the Apostle Paul and the apostles of, that, that were set up by your son as the foundation of the church that we see so clearly over and over again in the book of Acts. We pray that we as a church, as your people, would be like them in our commitment to kind of gospel purpose and intentionality in our lives, that we would understand that gospel proclamation is upon the authority of your word. The method is to proclaim and reason and teach that the content is to proclaim Christ and him crucified, to understand where people are, to hear where they're at, to start with helping them understand you and who they are and what their need is and how your son has come to answer that need in his life and death and resurrection. And may you help us, Father, to partner with one another, to to love one another in the church, to show our commitment to one another for the sake of the end that the bride of your son is redeemed from every tribe and tongue and nation so that he is exalted and ultimately so that you are exalted. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.